Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. It was one of the most memorable visuals from the January 6th attacks, something that you couldn't really forget. The moment... The moment when rioters chased Capitol Police officer Eugene Goodman up a stairwell near the Senate chamber looking for lawmakers. The video was a key piece of evidence against the man at the top of that stairwell, the guy who was leading the pack, the guy wearing that QAnon T-shirt. His name is Doug Jensen. Two days after the attack, Jensen told the FBI that he went to the Capitol because he believed in a number of QAnon conspiracy theories about the election. But he also said he was there because President Trump asked him to be there. From his FBI interview, he said, the reason I went was because Trump said he had info for us at this rally. And I honestly thought I was going there to be told. I thought it was showtime. He later added, I made sure I was pretty close to the front of that crowd. The reason I made sure I was at the front was because I wanted that cue to be on TV. I wanted Q to get the attention. I basically intended on being the poster boy of QAnon, and it really worked out. I'm like, you know, my job as a digital soldier is to be the news. My job as a digital soldier is to be the news. Another person who considers himself a digital soldier is this man, former national security advisor Michael Flynn. Flynn actually trademarked the phrase digital soldier. He sells digital soldier merchandise online. He also took kind of an oath with his family, invoking <clears throat> the QAnon slogan, where we go one, we go all, and later posted that video online using a QAnon hashtag. Flynn's family later said it was just a family motto. I mean, hey, to each his own. Doug Jensen told the FBI that he believed in QAnon so much that he thought Mike Pence was going to be arrested on January 6th and Michael Flynn was going to become the vice president. Doug Jensen went to the Capitol for people like Donald Trump and Michael Flynn. And today, Doug Jensen was sentenced to five years in prison after a jury convicted him of five felony offenses, including assaulting a law enforcement officer and obstructing an official proceeding. And that last change, that last charge, it merits special attention because this is the very same charge Liz Cheney publicly hinted at one year ago, a charge that could be used against former President Trump for trying to prevent or obstruct the certification of Joe Biden as president, as president, an official proceeding. The same charge that Doug Jensen himself has been found guilty of today. And tonight, NBC News is reporting that the January 6th committee is coming close to a decision on making criminal referrals against the former president. The committee is considering referring Trump on three potential charges, conspiracy, obstruction of an official proceeding and insurrection. The committee has yet to make a final decision on those referrals, but it plans to meet this weekend to do so and then announce its decision at a public televised meeting at 1 p.m. Eastern on Monday. But the committee has been forecasting the possibility of referring Trump to the Justice Department for quite some time now. 
especially after a judge in California agreed with the committee earlier this year that based on the evidence, Trump more likely than not attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress that day. Other experts also agree. Earlier this year, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, Barbara McQuaid, wrote a model prosecution memo analyzing the potential charges against Trump. She concluded that, based on the facts already known, it appears that Trump and others could be charged with conspiracy to defraud the United States and obstruction of an official proceeding. While potential defenses would need to be assessed, there is evidence sufficient to make it probable that convictions could be obtained and sustained. Joining us now is the expert herself, Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and now a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. She is also an MSNBC legal analyst. Barb, it's good to see you. Thanks for being here tonight. Um, let's just let's just get started with these charges. I mean, the first one, obviously, that stands out, I think, to anybody who's hearing this is insurrection. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that possibly being supported with the evidence that, that the public has seen thus far? This is a big charge, Alex. Uh, in that memo I wrote back in February, I did not include this charge. This is one that is not charged often, if ever, and charging it against a former president would be a real walloper. Um, if you look at the facts of what happened on January 6th, it makes some sense. It says it, it's a crime to incite an insurrection, to rile people up and send them to attack our government. And if you look at what Donald Trump did in his speech on the ellipse and in the months preceding it by, you know, uh, fanning the flames about a stolen election, it seems like that's what he did. I think one of the things that gives most of us pause is that there is this First Amendment defense that I think would be uh, played out here. There's a case called Brandenburg versus Ohio, where the Supreme Court has set a really high bar when it comes to political speech. It allows people to say things that are really fiery. It allows politicians to talk about fighting uh, against their rivals. Uh, the standard in Brandenburg <clears throat> is that uh, the government cannot make it a crime unless uh, the person uh, intends to incite imminent lawless action and such action is likely based on their comments. Uh, so because of that defense, I worry about the strength of such a charge. But if you look at just the face of the charge, it absolutely fits what Donald Trump did on January 6th. Now, you know, none of this is set in stone. The committee is going to be meeting over the weekend to make a final decision. It sounds like from your analysis, this is probably the most controversial of the three that have sort of been put out there, if you will. Let's talk about the other two, because they are both mentioned in the memo that you wrote, the prosecutorial memo earlier this year. Obstruction of an official proceeding, the thing that um, <clears throat> Doug, I want to say Jones, Doug, our QAnon friend Johnson, was <laughs> convicted of today. This seems more on its face, easily understood. How complex do you think this will be to prove if the DOJ starts moving forward on an indictment? I think this one's really easy, Alex. It is obstructing an official proceeding with a corrupt intent. And so there's an official proceeding going on on January 6th. There's a joint session of Congress convening for the purpose of certifying uh, the electors, the last step between the election and Joe Biden as president. And Donald Trump tries to obstruct that. Um, it isn't even necessary to prove that, you know, he unleashed the mob or he conspired with uh, the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys. It is enough that he tried to exert pressure on Mike Pence to get him to uh, avoid shirk his duty to be the one who was counting those ballots. And he did it with the ongoing uh, claims of a stolen election. He said it to Mike Pence privately and he said it to Mike Pence publicly 
even in his remarks at the Ellipse. So this one strikes me as actually a, a rather easy one to prove. There has been some litigation going on on this idea of what it takes to obstruct an official proceeding. There's some argument that says there have to be documents involved, and that's what has been argued recently in front of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, whether you know simply going in and stopping, uh, physically disrupting a proceeding is enough. But I think Donald Trump's actions, which included the submission of these certificates from fake electors from around the country, probably meets even that standard. So this mm. one strikes me as probably the easiest of all those potential charges to prove. And then conspiracy to defraud the United States. If two more persons conspire either to commit any offense against the United States or to defraud the United States or any agency thereof in a manner or for any purpose, and one or more of such persons do act do act to affect the object uh, the object of the conspiracy, each shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than five years or both. Um, your assessment of that charge and how strong it is. I think this one is strong as well, Alex. This is what prosecutors refer to as a Klein conspiracy based on a case of that name. And it makes it a crime when a person uses some sort of fraud to disrupt the proper functioning of government. Robert Mueller charged this particular statute against the Internet Research Agency for their work when they conducted that influence campaign by buying up ads on Facebook and other social media platforms to disrupt the fair election in 2016. And so it's that same theory that Donald Trump Trump used lies about a stolen election in an effort to uh, subvert the lawful transition of presidential power the way it was supposed to take place. Mike Pence shows up on January 6th. He counts the votes. They certify the president. He tried to subvert that with false claims of a stolen election. So I think this one, too, is a fairly easy charge to prove. There's some argument that when you say defraud, it means defraud out of money. So I suppose that is an argument. But that argument has not uh, succeeded in other contexts. So I would expect this argument to also succeed here. So I would put it in second place behind obstruction of an official proceeding as likelihood of success. What about um, the news that we had just a few hours ago that Chief Judge Beryl Howell in Washington unsealed opinions concerning communications among various Trump allies, including John Eastman, the lawyer, and Representative Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. In her opinion, she noted that federal investigators had prioritized accessing any emails sent to or from Scott Perry's account. It sounds to me, in my layman's opinion, that Representative Perry may be in some serious trouble. Yeah, so, you know, the January 6th committee did uh, discuss this conversation to some extent. You know, this involved Jeffrey Clark at the Justice Department and trying to um, get him to send letters uh, on behalf of the attorney general and to get the acting attorney general to send letters out to states to convene legislatures for the purpose of submitting their own alternate slates of electors. Republican states that had gone for Biden, where the Republican legislatures would say, you know, there's so much confusion about what happened in our states that we think that uh, in the interest of fairness, we should throw out what the voters did and just substitute our own views of slates. And by the way, we're all Republicans, so we picked Donald Trump. Uh, it was a path to victory for Donald Trump. But it was Perry and Klukowski and Eastman and Clark who were all involved in that. And so uh, I agree with you, Alex, that I think uh, Perry is someone who may find himself in trouble, unless, of course, they're cooperating and they're agreeing to testify about all of this. But it does seem that the Justice Department is focusing on this aspect of the crime. And this one strikes me as right there in the wheelhouse of conspiracy to defraud the United States. Former U.S. Attorney Barbara McQuaid, thank you as always for your expertise, Barb. Thanks, Alex.
Now, yesterday, 41 House Democrats introduced a resolution to ban former President Trump from ever serving in public office again because of his role in the January 6th attack. The basis of that resolution is pretty simple. The 14th Amendment states that no person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States who engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. And the presidency is an office of the United States, so that part is relatively easy. But that second part, proving that President Trump engaged in insurrection himself or aided or comforted the people that did, well, the January 6th committee hearings have shown us just how tricky that is to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. The section in this resolution about the actual barring of President Trump from office is very short. But the section detailing how exactly Trump is responsible for January 6th, that part is long. It's 26 of the resolution's 28 pages. It is a detailed summary of evidence from the January 6th hearings and Trump's second impeachment and public reporting. And whether or not Trump actually gets banned from holding office, all of that is now part of the congressional record. But beyond that, this resolution tells us something that is very useful about our next guest. The lead sponsor of this resolution was Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline. You may remember him as one of the impeachment managers from Trump's second impeachment for his role in January 6th. Congressman Cicilline is also a senior member of the House Judiciary Committee. And thanks to the detailed argument laid out against Trump in yesterday's resolution, we know Congressman Cicilline is fully rented and caught up on the January 6th committee's case against former President Trump. So now, with the January 6th committee reportedly contemplating a criminal referral of former President Trump for the charge of insurrection, there's no one better suited to help us understand the committee's case. Joining us now is Congressman David Cicilline. Congressman, thanks for joining me tonight. What is your reaction? My pleasure. What is your reaction as the author of this resolution, which focuses in large part on insurrection, that the committee may be considering a criminal referral of the president for insurrection? Well, the committee has done an extraordinary job, and they're going to make a determination as to whether or not they'll make criminal referrals and on what offenses. But the legislation that I introduced with 40 of my colleagues is based on the 14th Amendment, as you said. It disqualifies someone who has engaged in an insurrection, which is basically inciting a rebellion against the authority of the United States. There's overwhelming evidence that Donald Trump did that. And Section 5 of the 14th Amendment uh, authorizes Congress to pass legislation to enforce Force this provision. So this is our duty. You know, we take an oath to the Constitution. It sets forth disqualifying uh, events that prevent someone from holding office. He has committed those uh, acts, and the resolution lays out in detail his participation, and he's barred from holding office. And so this is the first step that Congress has to take uh, to disqualify him. And, you know, we don't get to decide, well, we'll apply these parts of the Constitution, but not these. We all took an oath to uphold it. This is what is in the Constitution. And I think it's our responsibility to enforce it. I mean, it, 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 it faces an uphill climb, does it not, Congressman? Well, look, there's no question it does, I'm the, in, mo- in large part because of how little time we have left in this Congress. But look, if we start just surrendering our responsibilities because it's an uphill battle, I mean, I wrote the article of impeachment for the second impeachment, and a lot of people said back then, oh, we shouldn't impeach him again. He's already been impeached once, and he's leaving office. And I think it was a very important thing that he be, uh, you know, tried and, and, and appeared before the Senate, and the American people saw the most bipartisan uh, conviction of a president in our history 
history, 57 votes that he incited a violent insurrection against the government of the United States. So this is uh, important. Um, you know, we have at least one more session left next week. And this is a responsibility that we have to bring this to the floor and be certain that Donald Trump is barred from holding. You can't lead a government you tried to overthrow. It just mm. it's not it's not permitted. Yeah, it seems like all of these actions, regardless of the current political stalemate, if you will, especially in the Republican Party as it concerns January 6th, all of these actions, whether it's the impeachment proceedings, the January 6th committee hearings, the resolution you introduced, it is both for the Constitution and for history, it seems like, that, that, that a flag is planted in the ground, that people understood the wrongs that were committed and tried to do something about it for, few, for, for the long lens of history. Do you get the sense, because we've talked about this in recent days, that anyone in the Republican Party in Congress is coming around to the idea that Donald Trump is an albatross around the party's neck and has acted unconstitutionally in his capacity as commander in chief. Well, I, you know, I don't see a lot of evidence of that. We're starting to see some of it. But I say to my colleagues all the time, you know, your grandchildren are going to know that you were in Congress during this period. They're going to study the Trump presidency in school and they're going to come home and say, Grandpa, Grandma, what did you do? And they're going to have to say, I helped him or I did nothing. And I want to be sure that when I'm asked that question, I said I did everything I possibly could to hold him accountable, to protect our democracy and to uphold the Constitution. Uh, Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline, thank you for doing the right thing for, for history and for everybody's Thanks, grandchildren. Evan. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. Still ahead tonight, last month, Pennsylvania Democrats won a majority in the State House. So why are Pennsylvania Republicans blocking them from taking control? The answer is weird and it is wild. And it hasn't even been two months since Elon Musk took over Twitter, promising the return of free speech, quote unquote. But he is already censoring a whole lot of people. A reporter who's gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with the second richest man in the world joins me next. Stay with us. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. See, that's such dishonest reporting because, of course, it happens to be NBC, which is possibly worse than CNN. Possibly. John Roberts, go ahead, John. No, no. John Roberts, go ahead. CNN's fake news. I don't well, take sir, questions. I don't take questions from CNN. CNN is fake news. I don't take questions from CNN. 
That sort of exchange between Donald Trump and respected media outlets was a staple of his administration. Trump would consistently lash out at reporters for basically just doing their jobs. Less than six months into his presidency, Trump tweeted a video he found on the Internet showing his head on a body tackling another body with CNN's logo as its head. He used the hashtag FraudNewsCNN because, of course, he did. Well, when CNN identified the handle of the Reddit user who made that doctored video just a few days later, the far-right Internet was not happy. They took to Twitter to threaten to dox the CNN reporters and their families on The Daily Stormer. Docs, by the way, meaning to maliciously place private or identifying information about a person online. Threats to dox journalists, much like the constant disdain from the news media, those were hallmarks of the Trump era. Which is why it was deja vu all over again when we saw headlines like this last night. Elon Musk bans several prominent journalists from Twitter. And Twitter suspends journalists who have been covering Elon Musk and the company. Those journalists included people like CNN's Donnie Sullivan, The New York Times' Ryan Mack, and The Washington Post's Drew Harwell, and independent journalist Aaron Rupar, among others. Now, those journalists, like the ones I just mentioned, who've been covering Elon Musk and his companies, have recently picked up reporting about the location of one of Musk's private jets. Specifically, some of these journalists have linked to an account called Elon Jet. Links to the Twitter account. The account is run by a 20-year-old former Elon Musk fan who's been using publicly available flight data to track the whereabouts of one of Musk's jets. The fact that that account has been able to do that and has gotten picked up by reporters is now apparently stuck in Elon Musk's craw. He has suspended the original Elon Jet account and threatened legal action against the 20-year-old behind it. He's asserted that any journalists reporting on the whereabouts of his plane are, quote, posting his exact real-time location, basically assassination coordinates. Essentially, Musk is suggesting that this is somehow a form of doxing and decreeing that anyone doing it will be suspended, which is exactly what happened to those reporters from CNN and The New York Times and The Washington Post. Hours after suspending those accounts, Musk squared off with a bunch of reporters in a Twitter space audio discussion. Many of the suspended journalists found a backdoor into that discussion and asked Musk to explain himself. There is not going to be any distinction in the future between journalists, so-called journalists, and, and regular people. Everyone's going to be treated the same. They're not special because you're a journalist. It's no more acceptable for me, for you, than it is for me. Same thing. So, anyway... Uh, so it's unacceptable what you're doing? No. What, you, you, you dox, you get suspended, end of story, that's it. Elon, Elon Musk left the chat shortly after that. Now, Musk is justifying all this censorship by suggesting that the suspended journalists were somehow implicated in a breach of private data. My plane, he said, is actually not trackable without using non-public data. Here's the thing, though. It is trackable using only publicly available data. We know that because we found the location of his jet today using this highly sophisticated and terribly exclusive journalistic tool called the Google search bar. And that information is still online and trackable, regardless of Musk's account suspension spree. What actually appears to be happening here is this. Elon Musk is picking a fight with journalists who are doing their jobs, covering the whims of one of the richest men in the world, who also happens to own one of the most influential social media platforms around. And as that platform becomes increasingly more dangerous to use, that coverage becomes more imperative. 
Joining us now is another journalist who has been suspended today by Elon Musk, Lynette Lopez, a business insider columnist who focuses on U.S. politics, economics, and controversial companies like Tesla. Lynette, thank you for being here today. I should offer you my condolences for being suspended from Twitter, but somehow I think it must be freeing in a certain way as well. It is. You know, um, I don't have to worry about when I'm going to be suspended because it's already done now. And I don't have to worry about what's on Twitter because it doesn't involve me. But what, I mean, you, let's just be clear. You were not suspended for linking to this Elon jet account, which I think is worth exploring. There seems to be a wave of suspensions happening courtesy of Elon Musk that also have nothing to do with the assassination coordinates of his private jet. What what do you think is going on? I posted legal documents that are years and years and years old. I've been covering Elon since 2018. I started I started investigating in 2018 and I stopped deeply investigating his activity at Tesla in 2021. These documents are related to a lawsuit that started in 2019 when Elon sued my source. These documents point to Elon stalking my source, hacking my source, and also doxing a prominent critic at the time. So the reason why I feel I was suspended is because Elon didn't want people to see him as a hypocrite. That said, um, I don't know for sure, because Twitter hasn't said anything to me. Hmm. They haven't Have reached, you reached out, out to me. Have you tried to figure out exactly why you're suspended? No, I haven't reached out. And I I have been covering Elon since 2018. Yeah. So I, I feel like I have a good idea of who he is. He has harassed me before and come after me on Twitter, accusing me of taking bribes to bribe my sources, which was a complete and total fantasy. So regardless of, I mean, regardless of what he found offensive in those documents, I know that the general feeling is that he did not want to be seen as the kind of person who does what he is decrying, Mm. which is basically what they were accusing him of in those Twitter spaces and what he kind of fell into. Have you been given any indication that the suspension will be lifted? No. Do you, I'm really shocked. I think for some people that really closely associated him with space exploration and Tesla, this new chapter in his biography is, is shocking. The heavy hand with which he has approached Twitter, his mass layoffs, the working conditions there, the attitude he's taken towards the media, and also increasingly this paranoid or this entertainment of a sort of paranoid QAnon-ish worldview, um, that has excited, you know, the far right and supporters of former President Trump. He's replatformed, I believe, this today. Mike Lindell, the MyPillow CEO, Jim Hoff, the editor of the right-wing conspiracy uh, site, The Gateway Pundit, uh, Tracy Diaz, a major QAnon influencer. Trump is welcome to go back. He just hasn't because he's too proud. So remember, like me, Drew Harwell, from all these journalists are banned. Trump can walk in anytime he wants to, and he led an insurrection. So let's remember what's, let's think about what's really going on here. What is really going on? What does this reflect? What I was trying to say is that Elon has always been like this. He was always, he was always doxing people. He was always 
uh, silencing his critics. I tweeted out a whole thread of how horrible he was to his employees, even at Tesla. You know, he he uh, has all he made people work in the factory during covid. He uh, has is a union buster. I mean, all of these things that we're seeing at Twitter, Mm -hmm. he did at Tesla, but he has been able to keep quieter because there's something about Elon and the complicated things that he does that makes people feel like he's inaccessible. Mm-hmm. And he, whenever he talks about his brain, he says, my neural networks. You know, he's like, he tries to complicate his own speech so that people don't understand the simplicity of what he's actually saying. Yeah. And so what I was simply trying to point out is that Elon is guilty of all of the things that he is angry at the liberal media for doing. And he's he's never been any different from that. We're just all seeing it. Do you think, but he's also a businessman. Yeah. And one would assume that this kind of behavior, this kind of uh, punitive, these punitive actions that are getting covered in the national media, I mean, you can't, maybe he can suspend all of us. I may, perhaps he will try, it, but, but this is not good for the bottom line. It flies in the face of Twitter's business model. You yeah. need content creators and journalists are the biggest content creators. We're addicts. Um, but he doesn't really care, I think, at this point, or maybe he doesn't understand the business model. I don't know. But what the reality is, he needs to find a billion three in cash every year to keep Twitter alive. Um, if he's going to do that, he's going to have to sell Tesla shares. That's his most liquid asset. So until he figures out a way to get a revenue out of Twitter, um, he is putting his entire empire in danger. For, For what? what? I have the same question, but year after years and years of reporting on this guy, all I can say is that his ego is extremely important to him. And he believes all of the conspiracy theories that he kind of puts out into the ether. He genuinely believes people are out to get him, even when they're not. He genuinely believe like the whole assassination threat. He might actually believe that. Um, I I can't imagine why anyone would want to kill Elon Musk, but that's that's what he thinks. That's his world. Unfortunately, this is not the best person to be running Twitter. Twitter's <laughs> problems are not computer science problems. They are social problems. They and certainly this are. this is not a social guy. <laughs> that is the understatement of the year. Lizette Lopez, business insider columnist and combatant with Elon Musk. Thanks for your time tonight, Lisette. Thank you. We have much more ahead tonight. Pennsylvania Democrats are about to take the majority in the state house in the new session, but with a few seats now vacant, Republicans are doing whatever they can to hold on to power for as long as they can. But next, President Biden is slated to sign the National Defense Authorization Act, which repeals the vaccine requirement in the military, which is Republicans' number one legislative priority. What could go wrong? Stay with us. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The must-pass annual bill that funds the U.S. military is called the National Defense Authorization Act, and it has now passed in both chambers of Congress. It has also given Republicans a victory that they've been seeking for some time now, the repeal of the COVID-19 vaccine requirement for U.S. service members. Never mind the fact that members of the military are already required to have up to 17 other vaccinations, depending on where they're being deployed. And that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the COVID vaccine mandate has kept U.S. troops healthy. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy went as far as threatening to delay the bill's passage over that vaccine repeal and claimed without evidence that the vaccine requirement made the military less able to retain service members. And then there is Senator Marsha Blackburn, another critic, who said this today. I am calling on the White House to publicly announce that President Biden will sign the NDAA into law with the COVID vaccine mandate repealed. They should make it crystal clear to China, Iran, North Korea, Russia, that the United States is serious about our nation's security and our continued freedom and not focused on some of these woke mandates. Woke mandates. While Republicans mock the military COVID mandate as woke and raise concerns about readiness and national security, the repeal of this mandate may do actual harm to both. Former New York Congressman and Army vet Max Rose makes that argument, and he has a new op-ed titled, An Unvaccinated Military Puts Our National Security at Risk. Here's what he writes. Absent a mandate, commanders will have to choose. Do they account for vaccination status when considering deployments, or they deploy an unvaccinated service member and bear the incremental risk of an evacuation because of illness? Rose goes on to write, if unvaccinated civilians fall ill and lack private health insurance, taxpayers may wind up paying the cost of their treatment. If service members fall ill while deployed, the price could be paid in the blood of their fellow troops. But beyond the consequences American service members themselves could face, also at risk are relationships with our allies. A COVID vaccine is required to enter South Korea and Japan. Those are two countries where thousands of U.S. service members are deployed. One retired general told CNN, quote, the host nation expects us to follow their regulations and status of force agreement requires it. The NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, without the COVID mandate, that is now headed to President Biden's desk for his signature, and he is likely to sign it. Allowing unvaccinated troops to live in close quarters and potentially violating agreements with our strategic partners in the Indo-Pacific region. What could go wrong? It was October 9th, just less than one month before Election Day, when longtime Pennsylvania state legislator Tony DeLuca died after a battle with cancer. DeLuca, a Democrat, was the longest serving member of the Pennsylvania state legislature at the time. He had been in office for 39 years. 
And that loss, while tragic for his family and his constituents, also created a logistical problem ahead of the upcoming election. With just one month until Election Day, there was not enough time to replace DeLuca's name on the ballot with that of another Democrat. So lawmakers in Pennsylvania decided to schedule a special election to replace DeLuca. The Republican state House leader set the date for that election at February 7th, which is early in the new year which is also the normal thing you do when an elected official passes away. And you want to make sure that his or her constituents don't go too long without representation. But then something happened on Election Day. Democrats had an unexpectedly strong showing in Pennsylvania. Democrat John Fetterman won the state's open Senate seat. Democrat Josh Shapiro won the election for governor. And for the first time in more than a decade, Democrats took control of the Pennsylvania State House, but just barely. When all the votes were counted, Democrats won 102 seats in the State House, while Republicans won 101 seats, giving Democrats a one-seat majority. But that one-seat majority includes the now vacant seat held by Tony DeLuca, who posthumously won the race in his very strongly Democratic district. And then there was this wrinkle. When Democrats won all of those statewide victories, it also meant that some Democratic members of the state house got promoted to higher office. One of them is going to the U.S. Congress, and the other is going to be lieutenant governor, which means they have to resign from the state house, bringing the total number number of special elections for Democratic seats up to three. Now, all of those Democrats were representing solidly Democratic districts in the Pennsylvania State House. So nobody really expects Republicans to pick up any of them and jeopardize the Democrats' very slim new majority. But lawmakers still get to decide when to hold the special elections for those open seats. The incoming Democratic leader moved to schedule all of those special elections for February 7th, which makes sense because... That was the day Pennsylvania had already set aside to hold a special election to replace Tony DeLuca, who, of course, had passed away just before the election. But Pennsylvania Republicans have decided they no longer like that date of February 7th, which was a date they chose in the first place. Now those very same Republicans have filed a lawsuit to try and push those special elections until the month of May. Why, you ask? Well, if Democrats have to wait to fill those vacancies until May— That means Republicans will stay in the majority for several more months, and that will give them time to pass a few constitutional amendments on things like new voter ID laws. Just to be clear here, Pennsylvania Republicans lost control of their state in part because their party embraced election-denying candidates with anti-democratic values. And now they are reacting to those losses by trying to pull stunts to keep themselves in power against the will of the voters. So how do Pennsylvania Democrats respond? Joining us now is Pennsylvania State House Democratic leader, Joanna McClinton. It's great to see you in this confusing and um, I would say enraging uh, predicament that seems to be unfolding in Pennsylvania. Uh, Joanna, are the Republicans going to win? Are they going to be able to push these special elections off for another five months? They should not be able to do that because it is clear. The only thing they want to do is delay these elections in Democratic districts so they can disenfranchise about 125,000 voters, folks who live right outside the city of Pittsburgh, who deserve to have representation in the state house as soon as possible. 
Do the voters know what Republicans in the legislature are trying to do? I would I mean, I would imagine if I were a voter outside of Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, I would be furious. Absolutely. Voters are informed and voters are outraged. And we have to be clear that voters rejected these same election denying stunts that our Republican leader has been doing uh, since 2020. Uh, many don't know that at the time when our Republican leader was the Speaker of the House, what was circulated and sent to our congressional delegation in Pennsylvania was a letter to throw out millions of votes in 2020 just because they did not like who won the election. And that same election denial we all know, led to a deadly insurrection on our nation's capital, where over 140 members of our law enforcement were hurt and five people were killed. So they're playing the same games and the same extremist agenda that voters in Pennsylvania just rejected. I think you can definitively say that lessons have not been learned among some corners of the GOP here. Beyond the voter ID stuff, what else are Republicans hoping to push through in this we'll call it interregnum period, where nobody is in control of the House. So in this period where they have a mirage of a majority, we have to be very careful because they passed the first requirement for a constitutional amendment to ban abortion in Pennsylvania. They also wanted to uh, require the voter identification at every single time you vote with a government issued ID, which can present a problem for some and be a barrier in certain communities. They also want to change the way our regulations happen. They want to circumvent the new governor's ability to work on environmental regulations. And it is very serious and it is quite concerning that they want to now disenfranchise folks for as long as possible, holding on to just a little bit of power for six months where they could do some really seriously damaging things to folks all across Pennsylvania. It really seems like a conundrum because I, I think that the Legislative Reference Bureau, something I've never personally consulted, but the opinion there, and it's a nonpartisan organization, says that neither caucus can claim the 102 members necessary for a majority and the House is left without a majority caucus until a special election fills the vacant seat or seats in this case. So, I mean, let's like what can Democrats do short of telling voters what's happening, resisting the uh, Republican efforts to push the special elections until May? I mean, what practically what levers do they have to pull at this juncture? So we have to know that they should be contacting the Republican leader's office. They should be making noise. They should be letting the leader know that this is not okay, that we are all watching. The world is watching these disenfranchisement measure measures and these delay tactics. And we're quite aware that the only thing they want to do is silence the voters. We're talking about districts where we currently employ the staff that are servicing those constituents um, down in Braddock, down in Swissville, in Duquesne. Like we have staff that are in those offices because they were seats and districts that were always always in our caucus. So we've got to sound the alarm so folks recognize what they're trying to do. They're even trying to change the rules. And members of the Republican caucus have been talking anonymously to reporters in Harrisburg about their concerns about this just going too far. Mm. Pennsylvania State House Democratic Leader Joanna McClinton, thank you for your time tonight. Good luck in this effort. Thank you. We have one more story to get to tonight. With just a few weeks left of holding the majority in the House, Democrats have accomplished something major and long overdue. That's next. Stay with us. As Democrats prepare to cede their majority over one chamber of Congress and go forth into the gridlock, they have managed to accomplish something that has been a very long time coming. It has to do with this guy. 
former Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger Brooke Tawney, who wrote one of the most shameful rulings in Supreme Court history, the Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott was an enslaved man who sued for his freedom in 1846 on the basis that he had lived for four years in parts of America where slavery was illegal. When the Supreme Court ruled against him in 1857, Chief Justice Taney wrote the majority opinion, one that declared that people of African descent, whether born free or enslaved, were not American citizens. The Chief Justice wrote that ruling a few years before the start of the Civil War, and he delivered it in a room in the U.S. Capitol, which is where the Supreme Court met at the time. The room is still there. It's been restored to look just the way it did in the 19th century when that awful Dred Scott opinion was delivered. And in the entry point to that room, which is now kind of a shrine to the U.S. justice system, in that entry room is a bust of Chief Justice Roger Brooke Taney. And that is a problem. This is not a guy whose image needs to be accorded a place of honor in the U.S. Capitol. And that is the thing that is now about to change. This week, the House gave final passage to legislation that would remove the bust, remove the bust of the man who believed that black people were not citizens. And he will be replaced by a bust of the first black Supreme Court justice, Thurgood Marshall, who was the great grandson of an enslaved man. The bill is on its way to President Biden's desk and a monument to racism is on its way out. That does it for us. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.